Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Thanks for joining us. With me is my usual co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Hi, Bill. Hello, Ward. We missed you on what day was it that Billy B. and I did the last Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday you guys did a podcast. you were in town. I was in town at the Center for the National Interest, Uh, was invited to... uh, a roundtable discussion where Dimitri Gorenberg of uh, CNA and uh, Toshi Yashihara of CSBA, uh, and, and Toshi is the author of the Naval Institute Press book uh, called Red Storm Over the Pacific. And uh, that that conversation was about, you know, high-end conflict, uh, major peer power competition, the, the topics that have been uh, very much on our minds over the last you know year or so, even more. It certainly came out in the 2018 National Defense Strategy. So uh, great conversation. Uh, Toshi really talked a lot about where China wants to be by 2049, the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party coming to power. Uh, it was you know, just a really interesting conversation. And then, of course, I was there when uh, all hell broke loose in D.C. for a snow event that was, you know, the great the great non-snow event. But of course, you know, panic ensues and the sky is falling because we might get an inch of snow at rush hour. So the 395 was a, an absolute parking lot on my way home. But, you know, we survived. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a good podcast uh, in your absence and you were missed because it was dealing with intelligence. And we talked to Commander uh, Wolf Melbourne right. about uh, his ideas of how naval intelligence needs to be modified and uh, uh thought it was a good uh, good conversation so if you're listening and have not checked out that episode of the podcast please do i think you, you think your average listener who's a fan of the show will enjoy that episode agree yeah um so yesterday we had our uh, first editorial board meeting in a couple of months so we we skipped in december because of the holidays uh and then we uh did one Yesterday to kind of cover uh, December, January, and actually February. We won't have one in February because uh, West is coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, but we went over about uh, 15 or 20 articles uh, with uh, the editorial board, purchased a bunch of them. Uh, a number of them will be in the March issue of uh, Proceedings, which we're starting to work on now, which is the International Navy's issue. Uh, real excited. We've got 25 foreign chiefs of naval operations or foreign Navy chiefs uh, have written this year uh, for the International Navy's issues. That's a record all-time high. What did you say, 25? Uh, 25, wow. yeah. Wow. Great so 25 answered the question in what we call the commander's respond. And one, the Argentinian Navy decided not to talk about what we posed as a question. Uh, they wanted to write about uh, the loss of their submarine last year and the international uh, effort to find uh, that submarine. First, it started out, of course, as a submarine rescue operation and then went into a recovery operation. Uh, just a you know, great story, interesting uh, lessons learned and, you know, a, you know tragic uh, story for anyone who's ever been to sea, right? So, uh, but we're excited about the International Navy's uh, issue, and then we're going to roll into the April issue. First time we've ever had an expeditionary-focused issue of proceedings. Uh, so we'll be talking about a lot of um, uh, amphibious uh, topics, naval special warfare. Uh, you and I are, are hope, hopefully hoping to interview uh, Admiral Green, the head of Naval Special Warfare, when we're out at West next week, he's going to be a panelist uh, during West, and we're going to do a go sidebar with him uh, if the you know everything can work out, uh, and interview him about what Naval Special Warfare is doing uh, to make a turn towards uh, you know back to blue. You know they've been in Iraq and Afghanistan, and you know 
you know, countering uh, terrorism for the last 17, 18 years now, uh, very focused on that. Um, but now they're starting to think about great power competition, about places like uh, the South China Sea, uh, East China Sea, the Baltic, um, you know, uh, obviously the uh, the, the uh, adversaries, uh, Russia and China, that we're talking about all the time. So that will be an interesting conversation, and we'll have it on the podcast, and we'll also have the uh, the, the text of that interview uh, in in hopefully in the April issue of Proceedings. And as we mentioned a couple of shows ago, we'll also have your panel the WTI panel as a, an episode of the, of the podcast as well. So, right, uh, right. that's going to be pretty exciting. Yeah, so at West we'll have WTIs from each of the Navy uh, warfare communities. So submarine, surface, uh, aviation, aviation helicopters, and even the information warfare community. So should be- Unprecedented un- gathering yeah. of best of the best. Best of the best Very across, across all the uh, warfare communities. And so. that crosstalk and, uh, and interplay is going to be uh, really, really- newsworthy and fascinating. Um, so as we've said a couple of times, if you're in the greater San Diego area a couple of weeks from now, it's uh, February exactly. 13, 14, 15 at the San Diego Convention Center. Uh, please join us there. It's free um, to active duty members. Free to active duty. And uh, a lot of people that uh, you've read about and that you've read their stuff, uh, fellow members, uh, we have a special uh get a member member get a member program going on we have a brand new booth uh set up that we are unveiling this year uh that we're very excited about so if you're in the area please come say hello to us as we mentioned thursday night valentine's night uh the uh the ultimate skybox there overlooking padre stadium and i just heard as a nationals fan that bryce harper may be going to the padres now Wow. Um, which is uh, sort of a uh, interesting development. But um, if you're a baseball fan, the inter- uh, the ultimate skybox overlooks the stadium. It's an amazing uh, venue. And as we pitched uh, a couple of shows ago, just a great hangout, great place to meet the people that you've uh, you know been influenced by or that you've that have provoked you, and uh, other uh, captains of industry, service leaders, all the people who are uh, worth seeing are going to be there. Quite frankly, so. Uh, Again, if you're in San Diego, February 13th through 15th, San Diego Convention Center, please come join us for West. Yeah, it'd be a great event. So let's go to our guest today. Uh, so in the uh, January issue of Proceedings, which is the Surface Navy-focused issue, we have uh, an article on starts on page 18 called Redesign the Fleet. It's written by Captain Trip Barber, U.S. Navy retired, and Trip joins us on the line today from the D.C. area. Trip, thanks for uh, joining the, the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. Uh, so your article starts off, and it says up front, the U.S. Navy's current fleet design does not match today's conditions, much less those expected over the next 20 years. Today's fleet is a mix of ship types that are evolutionary improvements, larger versions of designs from two or more decades ago. It's too small. The ships, on average, are too large. It's time for the Navy to make broad, significant changes in the fleet's design. So starting with that, tell us a little bit about what the Navy fleet of the future needs to look like. The Navy has it right in that a larger fleet is important, but the reality is that um, the way we're currently going, all of the ships that might make up that fleet are going to be larger than, at least as large as, or maybe larger than the ships of that type today. So they're going to be more expensive. And if you look at the national budget picture, the the level of funding needed to deliver a fleet that's significantly larger at the prices that such ships would cost 
it isn't going to be there. So the likelihood is that we'll end up with large ships in small numbers, which is not really the Navy that we need for the future. We need larger numbers of ships, and if they're smaller ships, when you aggregate their effects, as we plan to do with distributed maritime operations, you can have a satisfactory effect uh, with an, a price that's more likely to be one that can actually be paid. So how, how do we get off the vector we're on? You know, the, the, the program of record is decades in the making. As you've suggested, uh, previous shipbuilding designs or the, the, the fleet plans have given us this amalgam of, of uh, or grab bag, if you will, of, of, of classes of ships that are not, as you suggest, what, what we need for the future. So how do we, procurement being what it is, how do we get on the right course? Well, you can't do it suddenly. So fleets are made up of ships of the current types and ones that have been built previously. They last a long time. So any change in the fleet is going to have to be slow and progressive. But you need to put the rudder over to go to a different destination. And we just haven't put the rudder over yet in each of the different categories of ships. So you you do this one category of ships at a time or one class of ships at a time by having a discussion when you're setting the requirements about uh, whether you need to be bigger or whether perhaps you need to just be more numerous and smaller but more numerous. Uh, the surface force is doing that. The surface force is going through a process, and you've heard Admiral Boxall talk about it at public events, having a smaller number of large ships, a larger number of small ships, and adding unmanned ships to the mix. Pretty much what I said in the article. Uh, the other communities are not making that transition. They aren't all due to make a transition. I think the logistics force actually is the next class group of ships that will come up for setting requirements for the next generation. And so as each of these groups of ships or types of ships comes up for setting the requirements for what we're going to build next, that's the time when you do it. It's not across the board. It's not all at once, and it doesn't happen suddenly. Um, but we need to get the rudder over and start heading for a different place, or we're going to have a very small fleet of very large ships. So a couple of weeks ago, you were there at the strategy discussion group in Crystal City, which is a group that meets usually at least once a month with with visiting speakers who talk about naval topics and strategy and tactics. And it's really remarkably interesting. And the Q&A is always great. So Admiral Boxall, as you mentioned, from OPNAV, the head of surface warfare requirements, he presented a brief, you know, PowerPoint brief, which, as you said, this your article is almost that that brief in in text form. Uh, and it, you know, one of the PowerPoint slides was interesting because it showed sort of a, a, a pyramid shape of force structure with, you know, a, a few the the current numbers and what we expect the the numbers of DDGs in the future to be and, and CGs as the, as that number draws down and a few when we when we start to add in LCSs and and the next generation frigate um, but those are the small numbers at the top of the pyramid those are fairly expensive and manned uh, and then the bottom of the pyramid started to widen out drastically with lots of large medium and small uh, unmanned vessels, uh, surface, you know, surface vessels and also un, uh, underwater, underman, unmanned underwater vessels. Uh, so, uh, that briefing was really interesting and, and described the types of tasks that those unmanned vehicles would have. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, he has it exactly right. I've, I've actually been working with the surface force for the last several years to help them think through this. And, um, you just take the same missions that the force does. You adjust them a little bit based on the threat. 
you just distribute them differently. So there are things you can trust unmanned vessels to do today, and there will be more in the future. So you have to start small and less ambitious, but you have to start. And right now, the surface force appears to be the most willing to take the leap and assign militarily significant missions to unmanned things. Uh, the submarine force is reluctant, and the aviation force is reluctant for carrier-based aircraft anyway. So I think that what you see out of that force is the capability to do what the force of today can do against a future threat, but the capability spread over a lot more ships. That's the point. And exactly how you distribute the capabilities by category of ship isn't as important as the fact that you quit putting all of them in single, singular large ships because you just can't make enough of them. And as I mentioned elsewhere in the article, we're in a precision strike environment right now that we don't own. It's the other guys' precision strike environments. They're watching. Uh, they can put precision weapons on us pretty easily, and it's very hard to hide. And that hasn't been the environment we've been in for the last 20 years, and that really changes your thinking. If you think you might suffer significant attrition, you need to work that into the calculations of what is the most strategically effective force. If you have no threat of attrition, no threat to sea control, then large ships are the most cost-efficient. When you have the threat of attrition in significant amounts, that math doesn't work the same way. And that's really where we need to go. We need to accept the fact that we're going to be targeted, we're going to be shot at, some of the ships are going to get hit. You have to be resilient with numbers to survive. Yeah, that, that brief that Admiral Boxhall gave uh, was a warm-up, as you, you pointed out, at, for his presentation at SNA. And I, I missed it at SNA, but I got it at SDG. Uh, for the uh, the tasks to be distributed out to the small and medium and large uh, unmanned vehicles, uh, for the smaller vehicles, those were your sort of eyes and ears, your your forward scouts, your, your sensors, and then uh, talked about uh, how you would offload some of the, or not offload, but you would, you would build some uh, larger unmanned vehicles to carry your weapons, right? So they're sort of weapons trucks that are with the strike group or out intermixed with uh, your surface force or your manned combatants. Uh, but it's, it allows you with an unmanned platform to have more SM shooters, more, uh, you know, land attack, cruise missile shooters, et cetera. Uh, but but distributed so that if you lose one DDG or one cruiser, you're not losing all your weapons. Weapons are just payloads. They don't have to be integrally tied to a manned unit. They have to be commanded by a manned unit for sure. We always want humans in that kill chain for lethal uh, effects, but they don't have to be on the same platform. And when you put the number of weapons you need to fight the way we need to fight in the future on a single place and man it, then that thing becomes pretty big. Because uh, we're going to need bigger magazines than we have today because of the volume of threats that we'll be presented with or that we need to go after. If you keep making the magazine of a manned ship bigger, well, the ship's going to get bigger. And that's going to make it more expensive, so it will be less numerous. It's a death spiral, probably a bad choice of terms. But if you divorce the payload from the command node that makes the decision to employ the payload, then you can break the fleet up into smaller pieces, distribute it more widely, and, and frankly have it to be more resilient in the face of attrition. That's the principle, and that's what I talked about uh, for aviation platforms, for carriers, uh, for submarines, and for surface combatants. And, of course, you've got to make the logistic force more numerous and survivable as well to support all those distributed units. 
you've worked on the OPNAF staff and, and in the Pentagon in these sort of sausage-making positions. Taking your thesis here and overlay that on the five-year defense plan, what is currently underway in the in the program of record that needs to is not in keeping with what your your idea is here and how how do we get going on making the right fleet in this current budget cycle and the reason i say this is because every you know all we know about is ford ddg 1000 lcs you know we haven't started building uh, ffx yet um, but there's nothing in the pipe that meets your emergent need here, right? So, so how how do we start sure. to introduce this? So, never mind our lifetimes, you know, in two generations from now, they're actually fighting with the right uh, fleet. Well, so the requirements documents for the next generation large combatant are in work, and with it, the unmanned surface vessels. So those are. Things that are going through the process right now, and when they emerge, they will become program record. For for the layman, how 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 long is that pipe? What when would you that start to hit the fleet? CNO is very specific in the design for maritime superiority 2.0 about the year in which he wanted to see these things get on contract. So 20, 21, 23, depending on the particular unit. CNO name names and name dates. So those are the dates at which those things get on contract and. You start heading towards building the new thing. It happens that the surface fleet is next up. They just happen to have classes of ships that were reaching that point at this time. Uh, next after them will be the logistic force. Uh, you've seen some discussion of this common multi-purpose large hull and a, an agile small hull. So I think the logistics force requirements documents will probably come out in another year or two. And then after that, the next generation SSN will start working its way through the system. We've just committed to a, a course on the next generation amphibious ship, the LSD replacement. So that's sort of a done deed. Don't think we made the right decision, but you can't really bring one of those back once you've made them. And of course, we just committed to two more CVNs, so that's a done deed for a while. So those will be further down the line. Um, and I wouldn't say that we should cancel requirements documents and immediately rush out and change what we plan to build, because you got to design the new thing, and it takes a while. So... Over the course of the next 10 years or so, all of the different classes of ships will have requirements documents go through that either make the next generation the same thing as today except bigger, or they'll make it different. And those are the, the next 10 years are the window of opportunity to get the rudder over one part at a time. So Can't basically, we're, we're talking about building, we're, what we're talking about here is the fleet circa 2030, roughly. The fleet that's under construction in 2030 and the first few units are starting to appear in some of the categories. Yep, this can't be done quickly. You can't throw away ships that you've already built that have a 30, 40-year life. You just can't afford to do that. Uh, But if we don't do something, then the fleet of 2080 will look just like the fleet of today, except it's going to be a lot smaller. And all the ships will be bigger. And I don't think the budget situation is going to be good enough that we'll be able to have 355 ships even larger than today's ships. So trip right now, uh, the Sea Hunter, for example, is sort of an experimental platform that was designed, you know, built by DARPA and the Navy and has been out there, uh, and, you know, uh, using it to test operational concepts. Uh, but is the, is there a requirements document for the out there for the 
what what will what C Hunter will sort of morph into or what will be the next generation of it, a medium or large unmanned surface vessel that can be, as you put in your article, a weapons truck? Requirements documents are under development. Got it. Got it. Okay. Right. So, you know, you can't really talk about them until they pop out the end, but yep. they're actively being debated, analyzed, and there's going to be something coming out. I mean, CNO was pretty specific about winning one of these things on contract, and the Surface Navy heard the signal, and they're complying. Gotcha. Yeah. You make a, a point here in uh, on the, the third page, page 21 of your article. You say, if every set of 96 VLS missile cells must come with a $2 billion guided missile destroyer wrapped around it, the price of delivering firepower capacity will be too high. And that's just a, a great uh, sort of bumper sticker for this article in, in toto. You know, you're... Right. We're building these very expensive, exquisite manned platforms, but boy, for, for to deliver 96 uh, missiles forward, that, that it's co- it costs a lot of money, and uh, we've got yep. we to figure a way to do it I mean, it you better. need the exquisite manned platform. You just don't need it to have all the missiles with it that right. make it right. so big and make it so expensive. So, you know, what's what needs to be exquisite? Well, the missile cells aren't exquisite. They're just holes, right? So put them on something that doesn't need to be exquisite itself. Yep. Now, obviously, any ship needs to retain a certain number of weapons for its own defense, you know, whatever. But that doesn't mean if you need a bigger magazine, you need a bigger manned warship that'll be three billion or four billion or five billion. We've done that before. It was called CGX, and uh, even the surface community said, "Well, we can't afford that." So, and so I think you know, we need more weapons. We need manned platforms. They don't have to be in the same place. We both heard another speaker talk about electric weapons, lasers, high-powered microwave, particle weapons, if you, whatever it is. But but something that takes us beyond something that takes us beyond uh, you know missiles, right? Uh, yeah, you forgot phasers. Uh, phasers, yeah, stun stun guns, um, <laughs> shields up the whole thing, right? Uh, does that where does that fit into your um, your future fleet design? Well, weapons of that kind are reasonably short range, um, and they have a deep magazine. So what I talk about in the article, and I've talked about it in other articles I've written, is that um, defense may have to shift to shorter range, higher volume firepower, because you're going to have a lot of weapons coming at you. And if you're firing two to three um, standard missiles at several million dollars apiece at each inbound cruise missile, which costs less than that, from a guy who has a very big magazine and you don't, that trade doesn't work. So you really need to fire cheaper, smaller things, which inherently means that they're going to be shorter range. And kind of the ultimate one is the infinite magazine of a laser. But a laser is not going to have a real long range. So the whole philosophy that we're going to shoot the inbound threat at 300 or 400 miles with a, well, a $35 million SM-3 missile, that trade doesn't work, or at least it works in the adversary's favor. And so if you shift to shorter range self-defense types of weapons and that means that every ship has to have them you can't have unarmed ships in that case you can have an awfully deep magazine and you're spending a lot less to defeat a weapon than the cost of the weapon that's coming at you that's where we need to go and that's what a rail gun or hypervelocity projectile or laser whichever ones work in the end that's what they need to be able to do that's what their mission should be I want to focus on affordability a little more because you frame it very nicely here. And Bill just talked uh, in the abstract, but you you put a finer point on it 
uh, on on page 18 here where you say the cost of the Navy's current 355 ship fleet design is, quote, 60% higher than the amounts the Navy has spent on shipbuilding over the last 30 years and more than 25% higher than the amount appropriated for 2017. This is not Right. That realistic. was a quote from Eric Labs at Congressional Budget Office, but he's right. So I, I don't remember us ever doing well with getting cost under control. I'm old enough and we're all old enough to remember that the F-35 was supposed to be the truck, right? And the unit cost is, I guess, now about $80 million. How confident are you that we can build affordable, even unmanned uh, vessels? Yeah, the cost estimators say that cost uh, for a ship is driven by um, weight and by electric power demand. Uh, it's not just empty weight, but also the electric power demand represents the sophistication of the payload. Uh, so if you make the ships smaller, they're going to cost less. That's guaranteed. If you make a small ship not need a big electric demand, which a very unsophisticated USV that just carries weapons and disgorges them on command from somewhere else, that's going to be cheap because it doesn't have a lot of electric power demand, even though it may have a fair amount of tonnage. So you've taken tonnage out of the manned ship that has a lot of electronic stuff on it, and you've taken electric demand out of the unmanned ship that has a lot of bare metal on it. I think inherently those are going to become cheaper. If you keep trying to put both of them on the same ship, and cost growth is not, uh, the cost growth is directly correlated to the size of the thing that, or size and sophistication of the thing that it goes with. So the F-35, like most airplanes today, was driven by software costs. Uh, ships are driven by electric power and tonnage. And if you look at each class of ship that we build, each one is the successor, the new generation, is always bigger in tonnage and bigger in electric power demand than the one that came before because we haven't changed the paradigm of what it needs to do. It has to have everything to do all of its missions all integral to its own hull. That's why we have cost growth. We refuse to admit the fact that if the ship's bigger and has more electric power demand, it's going to cost more. We assume, postulate that it won't. Surprise, surprise, it does. And then you call it cost growth. The cost estimators would have told you it cost exactly what I told you it was going to cost. You just wouldn't listen. Well, how has LCS done relative to cost growth? I know it's had some issues with uh, the capabilities piece, or at least the original concept of capabilities, um, yeah, was, and just was, reliability. But how has it done in terms of the cost growth? It costs exactly what the cost estimators said at the beginning of the program it was going to cost. They were overruled, and the cost was stated didn't didn't correspond to what they said. They were right. You, when you, they were overruled, how? What, what, what do you mean there? The, the cost estimators were correct at the beginning of the program when they said what it would cost. We just said, Navy said, no, it's going to cost half that. Oh, okay. It, it yeah. cost exactly what the cost estimators, almost exactly yeah. what the cost estimators <laughs> said at the beginning it was going to cost. Okay. So you can, you know, you can do things like that that make you look silly. Um, I don't think the Navy leadership at this point They've learned. They, they don't tend to do that as much. So, you know, so that means that we're admitting the fact that each generation is going to cost more than the one before. The other, the other thing I think is that we're risk averse in acquisition. So, uh, right now, most of the things we're producing are um, designs that have been in production for a while. So they're pretty stable. So the cost is pretty close to what we thought it was going to be because it's like the 20th or 50th ship of the class. Not a lot of surprises. Anytime you transition to a new class of ship, and this is a topic one of the panels at SNA talked about as well, there's going to be drama. 
right? The first ship of a class, in every case, always, has taken longer to develop, costs more than what we thought originally. The follow-on ships often didn't, but there's always drama with the first ship when you go to a completely new class. So if you redesign the fleet and start building a lot of completely new classes of ship, there's going to be drama, and uh, there's going to be uncertainty in the acquisition base. So the acquisition community likes certainty and stability and and complete control of costs. And when you go to new designs, that just doesn't happen, at least at first. So there's going to be a lot of resistance, I think, to making a significant change in designs uh, just for that reason. Yeah, at the same time, you can't get something into the pipeline unless it's a generational improvement in capability. So um, you're caught between these iterative development, which would be safe, and getting something funded that's, you know, a new warfighting, a generational improvement in warfighting capability, and I think of Ford, right? We could have built more straight stick Nimitz class. We could have stuck with, uh, I sound like Donald Trump now, but uh, we could have stuck with with Steam steam cats. And uh, you have to hope that ultimately, you have to believe that ultimately, you know, emails and uh, and everything else will work. Um, And, you know, five years from now, we'll be like, what were we even worried about? Somewhere along the way, it gets kind of scary. You know, and um, expensive. I think that's well, and that too. Yeah, but I think we're kind of in the scary phase now, right? Right, with Ford. Um, when you start asking questions about what was the requirement for sortie counts in a 24 hour period, you know, what's the biggest airplane we can shoot off the front end, so forth and so on. And 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 sometimes the results in the test phase are, are kind of scary. Yeah, Trip, a few weeks ago, we published a, a piece on proceedings today by I think it was like five or six authors. Uh, some of them you know, uh, it was a it was a, a piece that was opining that uh, the Navy in the short term could buy some old uh, uh, merchant ships, uh, whether container ships or just you know large uh, you know, regular merchant ships, and turn them into missile carriers, either put VLS cells in them or put uh, weapons in uh, container, you know, standard container units and, and put them on deck uh, as a way to increase at, a, at a, a small cost, increase the number of missiles that are available out there in the fleet uh, very quickly. I'm curious what you what you thought about that article and how you would, if you would, uh, you know, put that into the mix in this force structure. Long ago, there was a program called Arsenal Ship. Yes. which was sort of that. It was a custom-made hull that was going to carry a lot of missiles. In fact, it was going to carry so many missiles that it was so valuable that you couldn't afford to lose it. Uh, that would be the case for these things that were discussed in that article. They're too large. So I think when you see the large USV come out, it's going to have weapons, but it's not going to have so many weapons that it's not considered to be attritable. So if you put 200 weapons of you know several million dollars apiece on a single thing, that single thing is worth a lot. That's probably not a good trade. You've once again concentrated too much capability in one place. So the trick is to keep it small and keep it distributed. Not so small that it's totally inefficient, but remember, efficiency is to be measured in an environment where attrition is a possibility. And so that large merchant ship thing is a very efficient way to put a lot of missiles at sea in a strategically highly risky way and very inefficient way because they're all in one place. So in that case, the hull might be inexpensive, and you may not have to have a large crew, but you're you're putting a lot of eggs in one basket. Right, right. Now, our existing TAKEs could actually hold a VLS. I mean, so there's a way to put a bunch of missiles out on a bunch more ships in a hurry by putting a modest-sized VLS on some ships we already have. I mean, so the idea of 
putting missiles on a logistic ship is not without merit. Uh, you you got to think about how you're going to defend it and how you're going to use it, and you can't put too much on any one ship. But frankly, the the large USV that is out there in the uh, testing process right now is a prototype, a strategic capabilities office. It's a commercial ship, right? It's it's not a military warship. It's a commercial hull with missiles dropped on it. Uh, not very many missiles, but the hull is awfully cheap. It's just commercial. So the you know the idea of using commercial hulls to house missiles is fine. That's in fact an appropriate hull. It doesn't need to be military. It doesn't need to be survivable. It just needs to be small enough that you don't put so many missiles on it that it becomes really really valuable. And then you got to put self-defense systems on it because it's so valuable and now it's a frigate yeah and, and well that, now that you put all that on it it's too valuable to lose and by the way you need a crew anyway so i think 96 is doing a good job of holding back on making that jump they, they have it right so as your final thought how sanguine what's your temperature on uh, the machine's ability to do what you write about here over the long term we will It'll probably be ugly and awkward, and some communities will resist longer than others. When I talk to people about my article, uh, other than flag officers who really you know, can't necessarily say exactly what they believe because of their position, when I talk to those six and below people who, are, who have thought about the future of the Navy, I haven't had a single person tell me that this is not the right answer. It's not the right idea. So eventually, we will do it. I think it'll probably be slower and a little uglier than what I'd like. But I don't see where we really have alternatives. Uh, we're going to have to do this. And so I'm sanguine over the long term. And I've learned from my many years in the Pentagon that if you have a great idea and you're persistent, you can outlast people who don't have good ideas. Makes great logic to us when we read it uh, a few months ago and then brought it to our editorial board. Uh, it engendered a good discussion at the board. Everybody was uh, you know, all in favor. They said, like, this just makes sense. Uh, so we were happy to have this be one of our lead feature articles in the Surface Navy January issue. Uh, and I can also tell you that aside from the two articles uh, written by the two former Coast Guard commandants about the impact of the government shutdown on the Coast Guard this month, your article uh, on our website is the third most uh, read article uh, in the in the January issue. So it's getting very good traction, uh, and it's also engendered a lot of great I thought very constructive comments and, and discussion uh, in the discuss platform or in the you know in the comments section of the website as well. So, congratulations on writing it and well, for thank starting you for publishing it. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great piece, and uh, I think you're you're onto a, a really good idea. And I expect that we'll see more uh, discussion uh, on the tenets of your article uh, coming forth, probably Summit West and uh, and more more to follow in the magazine. So uh -huh. thanks for writing it. Well, and uh, yeah, okay. look, look forward to uh, writing for us again. Well, thank you. I enjoy the experience. All right. Have a good day. Thank you very much. Well, that was Captain Trip Barber. He wrote uh, an article in the January issue of Proceedings called Redesign the Fleet. And it uh, starts on page 18 of the January issue of Proceedings. And uh, as we speak, my team is uh, uploading the February issue uh, of the magazine on our website. So, uh, so if you're a member, check out the app. Um, and yep. uh, if you're not a member, uh, as we've started to say here, more and more frequency, um, consider being a member. Support this show. Support the Independent Forum as it has been since 1873. Your membership matters. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, that wraps up uh, this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. We'll be back here again next week. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Mm -hmm.